friends, Greg Kokel here for Stand a Reason, and thank you for being part of our show today. I want to give you a quick um, announcement because of something happening tomorrow, and then I want to jump into my conversation with my guest today. And the announcement is that um, John Noyes is going to be speaking on live, uh, live on To the Point, which is his... Um, what do you call them? Uh, video blog, whatever, <laughs> to the point on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. I can't remember these fancy computer words unless they're written down here. But uh, John's doing his thing tomorrow, June 8th at 12 p.m. And uh, he is one of the reasons I want you to know about it is because I've had some questions about how do you deal as a Christian with Gay Pride Month, a whole month devoted in this country and in all sectors to celebrating homosexuality, how is the Christian to deal with it? He's going to talk about that. Frankly, I haven't even talked to John about this. I don't know what he's going to be. The angle he's taking, I might in the next hour have a comment or two about this. But if you want to hear what John has to say, that is tomorrow at 12 p.m. Pacific time and Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Um, those are the places to go for STR. If you're not sure where those are located, just go to str.org and down at the bottom of the, of the Facebook, you will, I'm sorry, at the bottom of the homepage, you will find all the appropriate links. Okay. Now my guest today though, is uh, someone I'm really looking forward to having a conversation with because we haven't talked in quite a while. And is a guy that I met because he accosted me. This is the first time we met. He accosted me from across a hotel lobby in Baltimore, Maryland at an ETS conference and dragged me over to a couch and sat me down to tell me a story. That story ended up in his book, Confessions of a French Atheist. I'm talking about author Guillaume Bignon, and I have mentioned Guillaume numbers of times because there's all kinds of fun things about his life that have bearing on the kinds of things we talk about. Guillaume, you are the one guy that looks younger now than you did, what, eight, ten years ago when we first met. How, how do you do that? You look fabulous. Well, thanks for having me, Greg. Well, the, the secret is I've gotten really good at live video editing, so it's all fake. I mean, I'm really good at it, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've had more kids since then. You, I mean, I think you have, you had one kid when we met. Now you got four. No, right? I have five, so it's four more. So that's. Oh, uh, four yeah. more. Oh, yes, okay. Yes, obviously. So that, that will definitely take a hit on uh, how young no, you I don't can know. Look. I don't know those people who say that kids keep you young. Uh, I don't. It looks like it's working for you, but I don't think a person who has children actually made that line up because I find just <laughs> just the opposite. So Guillaume, um, we were just talking off the air a little bit about that first meeting. I knew it was on the East Coast somewhere. You reminded me Baltimore. Um, I'd kind of like to pick up our conversation from there because your book is about um, your conversion from a Parisian atheist and a very committed one at that. Um, to a not not just a a follower of Jesus, but uh, someone who went who went on to get advanced degrees in New Testament and a PhD in philosophical theology and uh, writing a book and and uh, you're a significant voice for Christianity uh, theologically and in terms of apologetics and and uh, I just think it's amazing what has happened considering where you came from and so. Maybe if we could just go back, what, eight or ten years, whenever it was that we met, and you grabbed me and sat me down and said, i got to tell you the story, 
why don't we just pick it up from there so people can kind of get the historical perspective of Guillaume Bagnon. And by the way, I, I have one other detail, um, Guillaume, because I've recommended David Wood's uh, account of his own conversion, uh, yours and mine and many's favorite sociopath, right, David mm-hmm. Wood, and his conversion on video, one single take, unbelievable, 25 minutes or so, called David Wood, Why I Am a Christian. Well, he's walking through the subway, and he comes up in New York, and then he sits down at a bench, and there's this guy that I recognize sitting on the bench next to him, and it is Guillaume Bignon, you, <laughs> that is sitting there. I don't know, how did you happen to be in that film? What what was that all about? Yeah, that was all David's planning. So he wanted to record his testimony uh, and he said, hey, that would be fun if we could actually tape yours right after. So you would be the person sitting at the bench when I finish and I sit down and talk. And so I said, all right, why not? So I followed him and I ended up being on the subway with him and everything, uh, guiding people away from the camera to, so that they wouldn't ruin the one oh, shot, yeah. the one take that he took and then r- ran upstairs and sat on the, on the bench. And so that was a fun uh, continuation. And then he interviewed me and asked oh. me to share my story as well yeah so that's the story behind the story but mm-hmm. anyway but your story is what we want to talk about here today mm-hmm. so um you began telling me about life for you as an atheist and a volleyball player and a musician and a womanizer and all of these things are part of what god used to eventually bring you to himself and then to the position that uh, you're at now. Why don't, why don't we just start at the beginning with you? Yeah, at the beginning where none of it, none, nothing about my life looks like I'm a likely convert and where the story begins where a story that I would not believe is true if you had told me only a few years before it started. Uh, but yeah, I, I was uh-huh. so I, I was in France. I was uh, an atheist very much uh, uh, like hostile to the idea of religion. So not all atheists have to be like that, right? So this is a, a kind of a stereotypical view of atheists to say that they are necessarily angry at God or that they are always upset. I was uh, not angry at God particularly, but I just didn't like religion at all. So I was very hostile to the idea of God ever coming back. And I was very much hoping that once I shook off the whatever upbringing I had uh, going to mass in uh, in the Catholic Church in France, uh, once I grew up and was able to tell my parents I didn't believe any of this, I was very much hoping that religion would not make a comeback and was planning on avoiding uh-huh. it at all costs. Um, and so, yeah, so, I, like I was, a lot of people, you were you were raised in a religious environment, but just very casually and very nominally. And then when you became an adult, you just let that go. Yeah, that's right. And so ca- casually is kind of ambiguous because it sounds like, well, we really didn't do any of it. No, we were actually, you know, we were going to church and it was uh, somewhat of a, like a time taker. Like it was consuming some of our time. It's just that it wasn't a very strong life conviction. Like we didn't really associate this. It was more of a tradition. Uh, and so we didn't really, at least I didn't believe that there was a God who existed, who created the world and could be answering prayers or anything like that. Uh, so as soon as I was old enough to tell my parents that I didn't believe this and that I didn't want to continue going to church, I simply stopped going. And it was fairly natural. It was mm-hmm. just, okay, well, we're doing this now, or, or rather we're not doing this now. <laughs> <laughs> but that was like a lot of Europeans, especially, because very, very yeah. atheistic, materialistic kind of environment there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I, it's hard so, for me to speak uh, very authoritatively about uh, everyone else out there, but at least my own experience told me that m- many people were in my situation. They're just our parents grew up Catholic. We are not believing. And as soon as we're old enough, this is over. And yeah, we live uh, our lives like there is no God. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So then um, you had various women in your life. That was your lifestyle. And then you ran into one that kind of got you questioning or challenging. I think that's that's kind of where I picked up the story when you started telling me. I'm not sure how much of the prior to that you want to get into, but this is this particular relationship was yeah, that, something that God used to change things. Go ahead. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, at that point, I was a young adult in France and trying to find happiness in all sorts of avenues. So I was uh, playing volleyball in National League uh, and enjoying that very much, playing the keyboard in a rock band. And so I was living the dream of being a rock star and just uh, playing live on on stage. Uh, and then uh, I was uh, also studying to become an engineer and uh, be- became a software engineer. And I thought this would actually provide well for a life where I could pursue my own uh, pleasure and happiness. And then, like you said, one avenue was also we so in France, it, for a young atheist my age, it was very important to uh, be able to uh, brag of uh, your female conquests. And so I started to have enough success uh, th- at that as well. Uh, and so mm-hmm. very some varying uh, length of relationships, some, sometimes very short, sometimes uh, a bit longer. Um, and this was another avenue in which I thought this was going to provide happiness. Um, and, uh, yes, until there was one, uh, very unexpected meeting that kind of changed all of that. So the, that, that meeting was, uh, one going on vacation in the Caribbean, uh, with my brother and again, very random, uh, quote unquote for a Calvinist to speak of randomness, <laughs> but, uh, a very r- <laughs> r- random chance encounter, um, where we yeah. simply came back from the beach, uh, trying hitchhiking, uh, to back to the house we were staying at my, my uncle's house. And it's uh, just a, a random uh, meeting of uh, two American tourists who stopped to not even to pick us up, but to ask for their directions. And uh, in God's providence, it so happens that their hotel was next door to the house that we were staying at. So uh, we told them, well, hmm. we'll, we'll tell you where it is if you let us, uh, if you if you pick us up. And so they did. And we drove there <laughs> and uh, they were very wow. attractive. So we tried to uh, stay in touch and, um, you know, try to seduce them. And in the end, uh, yes, uh, I ended up uh, being in a relationship with the one that was from New York. And that's uh, opened up a kind of worm that, yeah. uh, that I would didn't be Vanessa, right? That's right. Yeah. So in the book, uh, she's named Vanessa. Uh, I mean, I changed the names of many of the uh, folks in the story just simply to protect their uh, personal uh, identity. Sure. Um, but yeah, so uh, Vanessa is uh, this uh, uh, American uh, former model and actress that I met completely randomly uh, on this island in the Caribbean. And uh, the okay, so, um, so yeah. Vanessa is a problem here though because she's a yes. gal that you are. As your story goes, I'm not telling any tales out of. Uh, you know, school, so to speak. There were a lot of women in your life. This was part of your lifestyle and jumping back and forth to different ones under different circumstances, sometimes uh, multiple relationships at the same time. But this is someone that caught your eye there, an American gal. Now you're heading back to Paris, but you want to pursue this relationship. But there's a problem. Yes, and the problem is that she claimed to believe in God. Uh, so the, to me, that was an intellectual suicide at the time. And I thought, oh, what, what kind of a nonsense is this? And why would that come in between us? This is going to be annoying. And the uh, second problem with that is that she also claimed that uh, sex only belonged in marriage so that it would have to be a, a point of contention between us because that's clearly not what I wanted. So uh, those those pieces were very mm-hmm. problematic. But she was exotic enough, you know, American from New York, 
York and uh, a former model and actress that I thought, oh, maybe I need to try to uh, make this work. And so I was, I set up to basically try to get her to get rid of her silly beliefs so that uh, we would be together and that religion wouldn't be a, a barrier between us. Uh, that was kind of the, the plan at the uh -huh. time. So your your um, noble goal was to to uh, have this this amorous relationship with this beautiful American woman who was um, believed in God was a Christian and the only way you're going to solve this problem and get what you want is to disabuse her of her stupid Christianity right so how did you intend to go about accomplishing that. Yeah, so the the first thing I did is that I realized uh, if I'm going to be talking meaningfully about this, uh, I need to understand a little bit what it's claiming to be true. So I had no idea. I mean, I had been raised in the church, but really quickly realized that I have I had remembered nothing of my upbringing. So I needed to understand what Christianity even claims. So I started to think a little bit about God and uh, picked up a, a New Testament to read uh, a little bit uh, to understand, okay, what is it even saying? Um, and I also figured, okay, if I'm going to be looking into this, uh, there's one experiment that I can run as an unbeliever. I could say, well, you know, if, if, all, if any of this is true, then that means there's a God and maybe he's interested in me looking into this. So I prayed as an unbeliever believer and said, God, if you're out there, go ahead and reveal yourself to me in this. Uh, I'm open. Okay. Well, let me ask you about that. That, by the way, is a very popular prayer. Lots of people have prayed that prayer. I prayed that prayer as a non-believer. I was in a field in an uh, army base in, uh, in Seattle area in Washington State. And this is the summer of 1973. And I was in the military, the reserves at the time. But it, I'm not the only one who prayed that prayer. Um, but just help me understand the timing here, because is is that something you prayed right away? Or did you work for a while trying to dismiss Christianity, which you didn't understand. This is interesting to me. As an atheist, you rejected it, but you, in your book, you go into more detail on this, that you didn't even understand it. You didn't know the difference between the between Protestants and Catholics and Orthodox and whatever, Christian, whatever kind of thing. And so you're dismissing largely something you didn't know. Um, this prayer that you prayed, where did this come in along the process of trying to refute um, the Christianity that this young lady you've called Vanessa actually held? Yeah, that was a few weeks down the line after I started to open the Bible and try to understand what it even says. Uh, so it's not like I engage in a tons of arguments uh, on my own because she wasn't around. So I needed to figure things right. out on my own uh, and then prepare myself to discuss those things. So as I try to figure things out on my own, I read the New Testament. And it's it's uh, it's actually, it was a strange experience to read uh, from Jesus at the moment. Um because at that time I was expecting to find some very boring material that I thought I remembered from my childhood. Um, and instead, I, when I started to read the stories about Jesus in the New Testament, I found a really gripping character. Uh, I thought that the uh -huh. Jesus I was reading was very interesting. Uh, he navigated through tough conversations with his openness. He always has some witty report, uh, like uh, quick uh, wits and, uh, and really comebacks. Mm -hmm. um, and he was teaching you know, with authority and claiming to be the son of God and to be the savior mm -hmm. of the the world. So um, it started to have a different taste, essentially, uh, when I read this New Testament for myself as an adult. Um, and uh, I 
I also knew that I would need to give somewhat of an account of who I thought that Jesus was. I mean, I, I was an atheist, but I never bought the idea that Jesus never existed. I think this is way off. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I did minimally believe that Jesus was a first century teacher who went around the roads of Palestine uh, and then accumulated followers. But I, I, I needed to understand what, what I thought this was. Right? All of these claims that he had done this, done that, uh, performed miracles and was raised from the dead um, and by people who didn't really stand to benefit from uh, teaching lies about him. So um, that started to, to be a little bit of a rock in my shoe, to use a, a sentence that's dear to you, right. uh, that, to, to you see know, that uh, yeah, this, this person, Jesus, is going to be annoying. This reminds me, though, of our first conversation. One of the things you said, and you've hinted at it already, is that when, so you're picking up the Bible, you want to find out about this goofy thing, this girl who you want to win over, believes in, and this is a barrier. So you want to help her to see that this is nonsense. But your impression when you began reading Jesus, and this is what I recall you saying specifically there, is that he was really smart. He was a lot smarter than you expected to find him. I mean, this is what you were saying a few moments ago. Yeah, that's and, exactly right. Um, and also, I mean, this was an was interesting other... predicting point because it, it, it means that for the skeptic, this builds up a bit of trust. And also, uh, whatever we think of Christians around us, uh, I mean, I realize you cannot look at Jesus and think, I'm too smart for this. And so it was really helpful for mm -hmm. me to see that Jesus is really smart. Like he really got some deep teaching. Mm -hmm. He's really got some quick comebacks, navigates uh, debates uh, very adroitly. And so that, that was a, mm -hmm. an interesting challenge that I saw in Jesus being so smart. What, what, I, what I like about this angle, Guillaume, is that um, as an apologist, and I think a lot of people for standard reason, we, we, we obviously were thinking about using our evidences or arguments, trying to talk about Christ in a compelling way and help people see the reasonableness of Christ. But I, I want people to see here you've got a Parisian atheist that's trying to get his Christian girl in bed, and that's his motivation for coming to the Bible all on his own. And as he's reading the words of Jesus, he's compelled by the 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 uh, the insight, the wisdom, the cleverness, the capability of this very very bright man, and nobody, you don't need an apologist to tell you that. You don't even need a Christian to tell you that. You're learning it by having a first person engagement with the text itself. And the other thing that you said, and I'm not sure if you remember this, and I didn't. Maybe I missed this in the book. It might be in there. But you said, I was surprised to discover that what I was reading was actually history and not a mythology. Do you, yeah, do you recall that comment yeah, to me? Abso yeah, absolutely. And so this is, um, this is something that came a little bit later on uh, in my intellectual reflections about what I was reading. It when I came to grips with uh, the, the need to know what happened uh, with Jesus, the need to know that God is real and that Jesus was raised from the dead. And I was expecting uh, knowledge to require some degree of certainty, like I would need some sort of scientific proof or irrefutable evidence that this happened. And then I, I was able to uh, sh change my mind when I realized that there's tons of important things in life that we know, that we don't just believe, but that we know to be true, even though we only know them on the basis of testimony. That is, that somebody mm -hmm. who knew told us, and then we know. Like, I know mm -hmm. my name, 
I know my date of birth. I know who uh-huh. my parents are in this fashion. How do I know these things? Simply because somebody who knew told me. And now I know. Mm-hmm. There's something a little bit simple there. And I, at, at that time, I came to uh, shift my view of the New Testament documents and realized mm-hmm. that the four Gospels at least present themselves exactly like that. Like four witnesses telling us, look, mm-hmm. we've investigated those things. We've seen it for, our, for ourselves in many instances. Here is what happened. And we want to tell you because we think it really matters. Mm-hmm. And I realized that if that's, in fact, reliable testimony, then it was perfectly sensible to accept testimony from people who knew and that it sure. could be a source of knowledge just not just of yeah. faith but of actual knowledge <clears throat> that this happened so this was this was one of the surprises in reading the new testament to realize this so, is historical evidence is historical testimony and i can know the truth about this so just for my own clarification are you saying when you first read it you realize this is reading like history and then later on you came to the conclusion that it was reliable history or did the whole thing happen later yeah, no, that's right. It, it did read a bit different. Yes, the fact that it was talking about real people, about uh, real events, real conversation, it seemed like there was an authenticity about this. And now later on, mm-hmm. with my apologist's eyes, I can see that there's those earmarks of reliability that are just uh, found in this in the pages of right. the New Testament. You know, the the criterion of embarrassment that the New Testament is very blunt in telling you all the faults about their authors uh, and and the disciples of Jesus. Uh, so it, it really sure. reads like an authentic account and uh, all of that started to filter through even though obviously i didn't have the language for this well my guest is guillaume bignon and um if you don't speak french that would be which i don't but i do know how to say his name it's like william in french did i get that right yes i think it did yeah g-u-i-l-l-a-u-m-e last name b-i-g-n-o-n that's like a big non Yes, a big woman non. of God. Pignon. <laughs> yes, Philippe Mignon, or the, the minions but, from uh, Despicable uh, Me. There you go. Confessions of a French Atheist. Let's take a quick break, and we'll come back with more conversation with Guillaume Bignon, author of Confessions of a French Atheist. Stay with us. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org slash donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org slash donate. Is it reasonable to claim that if someone believes that God became a man, then they can also believe that a man can become a woman? We'll find out in the most recent episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schleeman. Look for it on iTunes, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. Hey friends, would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely, relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. 
Not only will you be able to interact with other Stantories and followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. Greg Kokel, giving you a piece of my mind today, as I do on Tuesdays from 4 until 6 p.m. That's when both shows are uh, are uh, recorded. Uh, of course, you can call in during that time if I'm not having an interview like I am today. Uh, the number is uh, 855-2439-975. Actually, people are getting in the queue for the next hour, which is great. Uh, my guest, Guillaume Bignon, who is someone I met, how long ago was it, Guillaume? Was it like 10 years ago or 12 or Almost nine? nine years, I think. It was, it was 2013. So Yeah, 2013. Okay, good. And uh, where we left off, uh, you are still a French atheist, but uh, now you're uh, what's the, you, God has got your attention because you're reading the New Testament on your own with a mind to um, discrediting it to the young lady that you are interested in winning. And, uh, and you realize, hey, this guy's a pretty smart guy, Jesus, caught you by surprise. This stuff reads like history, that's different. Uh, doesn't read like mythology, all right? And uh, then some things happened in your life that uh, freed up your Sundays, so you're able to check this out a little further. So tell us about that story. What happened? Yeah, so here again, I wasn't likely to uh, end up in church even if I wanted to, uh, but it turns out that uh, very shortly after I prayed that unbelieving prayer, I uh, suffered an injury on my shoulder. I mean, there was no accident or anything, but out of the blue, uh, my shoulder just in was inflamed and uh, I couldn't spike after a few minutes into volleyball practices. So uh, all of a sudden I was off the volleyball team uh, to rest my shoulder and therefore I was freed on Sunday mornings where I would normally have been at the games uh, all around the country. So this is uh, mm -hmm. that's what freed me to actually go and visit the church to see what those Christians do when they get together. I was curious to see what uh, that was. That was after effect. you had you had prayed. That was after you had prayed that prayer. Is that right? Yes. Yes, that's right. Wondering, uh, and, and, yeah. and, so, yeah. so you're you're looking through the New Testament. You're getting impressed by some things, and this is when you kind of pray a genuine prayer. Well, if you're real, you know, help me know that something along that line. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And then so your shoulder goes out. Yeah, my shoulder goes out and I'm freed up. And so I'm curious. All right, let's see what those Christians do when they get together. So uh, I went to this church uh, in Paris uh, and I describe it in the book like I I went they are like I would go to the zoo to see some weird exotic animals. Yeah. Uh, I remember and, you told me that too when we and, talked. And I was very... Uh, you didn't want yeah. anybody seeing you walk into a church, none of your friends, anything like that. Yeah, I was very self-conscious. I mean, it seemed like an intellectual crime to even uh, walk in the church. So I was, uh, I was it was very awkward. And, uh, and I sat down and I listened to the sermon and uh, I, it seemed like, I mean, I, I didn't remember much of what the pastor said uh, the people seemed nice and 
genuine and they, they also seemed like they really believed that there is a god so they, they, they were praying like there's somebody listening on the other side which was new to me mm. uh, and so it was a very strange experience and just uh, the big turning point there is that uh, after the sermon uh, was over I jumped on my feet and tried to escape because I didn't want to introduce myself to anyone and so I walked all the way back to the, the door of the church uh, and I, I opened the door and I literally had one foot out the door when there's a big blast of chills that started in my stomach that went up in my chest and grabbed me by the throat and I was frozen on the doorstep and so this kind of stopped me in my track and I and I heard myself thinking this is ridiculous I, I have to figure this out and so I turned around and I went straight to the head pastor and introduced myself uh, the very thing that I was trying so much not to do uh, and and this is how I got to meet the the, the pastor uh, that uh, you know, was very surprised to see <laughs> someone like me and but he was willing to talk and so we made an appointment and he said, yeah, well, we can talk about this. Uh, let's let's just uh, get together. And uh, we we saw each other. And that started a, a few months of uh, conversations that I had with this pastor about the Christian faith and my own situation. So is this the pastor that, at least in the book, um, is named Robert? I don't know if that's his yep. real name or not. Yeah, yes, or that's you might what, have that, changed. It yeah, is. No, this, okay, this one so is, he, uh, yeah, so his name is Robert Baxter. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and uh, so so here here you are you you you're trying to get out of this place that feels like a zoo with strange creatures in it. You get one foot across the threshold, and you're frozen. Something happens to you. You can feel physically. You're mm -hmm. stopped from leaving, and you're compelled to go back and then saying hi to the pastor. So this then initiates a relationship with the Parisian atheist who's trying to discredit Christianity and the pastor. So what was this pastor like? Was it anything that, what what was appealing to you as a human being, though an atheist, about this pastor? <laughs> yeah, he was very You're willing funny. to listen to him, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, for, for one, I was really there to try to understand what is even claimed or believed or practiced. Like, how, what are these people doing? What are they about? This was more the curiosity to see what, what am I even dealing with? And for that, I knew that he was a good voice to hear to say, okay, well, this is what we do. This is what this is my job, right? <laughs> I'm a pastor and uh, this is uh, what we do every Sunday. So I, I thought this was a, a good source for that. Uh, some of the things that were uh, interesting with him is that I initially saw yeah, I, I very quickly saw he was educated, he was stable, he was friendly. So he was a normal person, which sounds like a pretty low bar to clear. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but it was still a challenge because I was convinced that to really believe that God exists and created the world and raised Jesus from the dead, you really need to be intellectually subpar or emotionally compensating for something. So uh, to see somebody yeah. who's educated, who's um, expressing himself well, and still says, uh, yeah, I believe that God exists and that Jesus was responsible from the dead was very challenging to me. So, uh, Guillaume, just as an aside here, though, would you say that this is the, at least speaking of European atheists, because um, atheism is much more aggressive in Europe and on the continent than it is in the States, but would you say that this is a, a standard way that atheists understand Christians as odd and 
you know, like you'd go and look at them in a zoo kind of thing. You made a reference to that before, and they must be stupid. They must be socially unacceptable. They must be creepy in all kinds of ways to be able to believe this kind of thing. Is that a, and of course you are surprised to find out differently in the case of Robert. So is that a, is that the way a lot of people who are atheists in Europe look at Christian folk? So I, I can't generalize and say that's that's the standard view. I'm not sure how that that fares, but there's a very significant portion, yes, uh, that would just see uh, like Christian belief or theism even as a, a intellectually subpar option. I mean, the the most famous mm-hmm. French atheist in uh, in France today, his name is Michel Onfray. He's very mediatic, very very uh, visible on TV everywhere. He's probably one of the most famous French philosophers uh, in France today. And he's on print mm. saying that uh, theism and Christianity in particular is a mental disease, that it's a, it's, it's a neurosis that people have. So um, that's that's kind of setting the tone. Uh, and it's kind of a hangover from the Enlightenment, yeah. where there's lots of French atheist philosophers in the Enlightenment who said that right. on the one side, you have science and the Enlightenment and discovery and knowledge. And on the other side, you have the Dark Ages and superstition and religion. And so I, mm. I, I discuss a lot of those French, uh, that's, uh, usually they're very rhetorically interesting because they are they are full of verb right. they're, they're very wordy so um i i inter- interact with some of those in the book uh, itself some of those french uh, voices that may not be as well known in the u.s uh, and many of them do say things like that about the intellectual uh, subpar sure. uh, attitude well even michael sherman the american atheist says you know i used to be a christian but then i then i traded christianity for science mm-hmm. is kind of the 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 way he puts it which is a false dichotomy of course when people say that that's like saying i i'm i i uh <laughs> i no longer believe in god i believe in cousinarts you know <laughs> or something like that it's like well can't you like believe what a Cousinart can do and still believe in God, there's that false dichotomy. Maybe we'll get to that later. We're still right in the middle of your journey, though, and now you're in a relationship with a pastor who you're going, you're, you surprisingly respect because he's a reasonably sane, mentally balanced, thoughtful, articulate individual who has thought about things and certainly is not frightened by you, the atheist who's come into his church. So tell us about how that relationship developed and specifically in the kinds of things that you talked about that began moving you away from your confident atheism and towards a respect for the Christian theistic worldview. Yeah, so those conversations, I tried to give a, a, the gist of some of the big uh, intellectual barriers that fell in those conversations with him. Uh, so one of them was, uh, first of all, my very strong concern about the Christian views of relationships and sexual ethics. Uh, I thought that the Christian morality was repressive and intolerant. Um, and so this is something that he had to work me through to try to defend his own view, uh, to say that this is neither repressive nor intolerant. This is actually quite defensible. And I was very hostile to a, such a view. So it was kind of a minefield and he walked through it very brilliantly. Um, he was able to present well, a, one of the yeah. things. Yeah. You go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry for interrupting. But one of the things I noticed in the book is that you had a very odd understanding of what Christian, the Christian view of sex was. And so when he kind of put it in its proper perspective, it looked more appealing to you. At least it wasn't a negative shot, right? 
Yeah, again, I mean, uh, referencing Michel Onfray, uh, the, his, his argument is that uh, Christianity is repressive, like it's all about castration, like sex is terrible, and it's all about... So he, he is he's really painting a, a terrible picture that's out there in the culture, and I was very concerned that this would be the case as well. So uh, there was a number of fears here that needed to be alleviated, but also my own uh, my own personal experience on relationship was, like you said, I was at, at, at that point uh, very much um, uh, on the very liberal and libertine side of things, and um, I had caused t tremendous amounts of pain. I had uh, betrayed, I had uh, cheated uh, and broken relationship, and um, so I I was certainly not prepared to find like uh, like abstinence uh, like a great idea, but uh, there was a part of me that thought maybe a more conservative approach to my uh, romantic life would be a good idea. And, and and in this, he was able to paint a somewhat attractive picture of his own relationship, where he he said that he he and his wife didn't even kiss until the traditional words from the pastor, "You may kiss the bride." And while I thought that was outright crazy, uh, I, I thought there's something beautiful about this. You know, like you may kiss the bride, and that's yeah. it, and they kiss and they're together. So he he was able to just be a, a living witness that was presenting a better picture than what I feared. So so this is a significant point, I think, Guillaume, because uh, a huge stumbling block, as you're mentioning, is the whole sexual ethic. And part of it was distortion, because the atheist that you're referring to completely mischaracterized it. You get a biblical characterization from the pastor, which begins to make it look more appealing on its own terms, but then by contrast, I mean, you're a good-looking guy, you're an athlete, you're a musician, you didn't seem to have any difficulties attracting beautiful women, women and seducing them, yet what you're saying is, and you say this in the book, so it's not, again, I'm not telling <laughs> tales out of school, that this was not a satisfying kind of life for you, because not only did it entail this unsatisfying, on balance, sexual variety, but a whole bunch of other things like lying and deception and breaking relationships and hurting people that were all part of the package. And when he started to characterize sex from a Christian perspective, that just began to look appealing to you. Which yeah. I, I just didn't want to skip over that because I think it's such an you mentioned it, but I wanted to emphasize it because um, the, I think I, I wrote this line down. I think it's from your book. The conservative view of sex and marriage seemed more positive. And boy, if that isn't something that our culture here in America needs to hear over and against Christianity, which they view much the same way that you used to view it. Yeah, very much so. And and it's giving you a, a view on the ground, like what sort of apologetic work is, is necessary. We as apologists tend to start with uh, God's existence. And so we'll run arguments from the uh, origin of the universe and from the fine tuning of the universe yeah. or, or even the moral argument, which hits a bit closer to home. Uh, there's a whole strand of apologetic defense that simply needs to show that Christianity is good. Yeah, so that we yeah. can actually desire it before we even establish that it is true. And so yeah. that, that preliminary apologetic work was very well done with this conversation mm -hmm. with this pastor. Mm -hmm. What other kind of issues were problematic for you in coming, at least considering Christ? You're already doing it. There's a positive thing going on. What other barriers needed to be 
removed for you as you thought mm -hmm. about these things? Yeah, another barrier was uh, the position of science. I mean, once again, it's one of those cliches, but that was very present in my culture and therefore in my beliefs that somehow science would be in conflict with God's existence. And also I figured that if I were to ever... Um, become a Christian, it would be because I know that there's a God. And for me, knowledge required scientific evidence. Like this is how you get knowledge. It's through science. These were some of the intellectual hurdles that, uh, that needed to be addressed. And here again, partly through my conversations with Robert and partly through my own thinking, I realized that science played the very wrong role in all of this. That uh, obviously science was a very respectable way of knowing things about the natural world. Uh, and But virtually nothing that my own scientific studies had uh, involved uh, were even relevant to God's existence and very, um, like, mm -hmm. like there was clearly nothing that I had come to study and know that was directly in conflict with the idea that God created the world. And so um, just uh, relaxing on the alleged hostility of science and then also understanding that uh, science doesn't have to be the means of us knowing the truth about God's existence. Uh, because there's plenty of things we know that don't come from science. So it's a very restrictive idea to think that science is the only source of knowledge. And it's also self-refuting because, of course, we it's not science telling us that science is the only way of knowing things. So right. it, it's not yeah. even satisfying its own standard, which was really a bad idea for, for a, a, a claim. See, this is why this particular challenge is so surprising to me. I know it's true for a lot of people like it was for you, Guillaume. Mm -hmm. That and I mentioned Michael Shermer. I left religion for science, as if these are these are opposite enterprises. It's one or the other. But you just said there's nothing in your knowledge of science that that in which fact of science, if you will, or which detail of science invade against God's existence. It doesn't directly speak against that at all, and. Um, but it is taken as kind of a, like, um, an, well, I was going to say an article of faith, but maybe that's the best way of putting it. It is taken as a dogmatic, uh, legitimate assertion that it's either science or God. I was talking to uh, somebody who went to UC, um, UC, where is this? So Santa Cruz. Okay, very left-leaning University of California school up near San Jose on the coast with the Redwoods. It's great. A lot of very, very leftist. So she was studying science. And the idea there was, if you're a Christian, what are you studying science for? And that was a huge challenge to her. You believe in God? Then you can't be a scientist. You know, and same thing that you're talking about. Yeah, it is very strange, and it's kind of in the air we breathe and in the culture around us. I think that sophisticated atheists today recognize this is not the case, and uh, there's going to be simply conversations around what are, where does the science point to, if at all relevant to God's existence. And mm -hmm. there's plenty of discussions of various scientific data that are relevant to God's existence, right? particularly cosmology and the origin and the fine-tuning of the universe. Um, but yeah, so, so this idea that so somehow science is at outright conflict with God's existence is, is just needs to be discussed. Something that is something that's unusual, I think, in your case, or refreshing. I'm not sure exactly how to put it, because I don't think most Christians will expect the kind of responses that you have been talking about you had as an atheist exploring Christianity, is there was a there's a certain level of integrity, I think, 
in the way you approach this. And you realize, that, well, look, at Christianity is either true or false, atheism is either true or false, and I have to really decide on the merits, not how I think about it, how I feel about it, rather. But um, you're willing to do that and willing to even pray that prayer, which shows a lot of personal integrity. If it is true, I want to know about it. Yeah, there was was a number of instances where I had to really bring myself to that truth that you just pointed out constantly, because I I was uh, in the midst of all of this. There was lots of data about my personal life, right, Uh, and my future plans and what happens to me if any of this is true and all of those big questions. And I had to constantly realize, okay, what are all these big points here that need to be firmly held irrelevant in this? And they were dragging me in opposite directions because there was my initial hostility Mm -hmm. to God and religion and I didn't want to go to church and I didn't want to like surrender control of my life. I didn't want those things. Uh, I was hostile to that. I didn't want to adopt the Christian view of sex. So all of those pieces to me were very dragging me into saying, no, none of this can be true. And then I realized, no, none of those are relevant to the truth. Like if it's true, the fact that I find this inconvenient is not going to cut it. And on the opposite side was Mm -hmm. the idea that maybe if I wanted to be with this girl so much, uh, perhaps at some point it would be a motivation for me to actually accept it when it's not true. And so that also needed to be held firmly irrelevant to say, no, that my desires there don't mm-hmm. determine the truth either. So, uh, and, and yet those opposing sides didn't really cancel out uh, each other. So I really need to just be do my very best to say, no, right. let, let me look at what am I looking at here and uh, what do I have to go by to assess whether that's true or not. So at some point, though, well, I guess just to follow the go by the numbers here, sex and that whole ethic was a problem. Science was a problem. You had a problem with the issue of miracles, too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, the issue and, of miracles uh, was connected to science a little bit, to, to, to think that somehow the, the affirming miracles is going to be a, a, a rejection of the scientific worldview. Uh, and here again, uh, just a bit of reflection on the fact that miracles really only hang on God's existence. So that this is not a matter of rejecting miracles out of principle because somehow science is inconsistent with it. Nobody is saying that the miracles deny the science. It's just that an, an alleged miracle would be a suspension, you know, uh, something that happens that would not have otherwise happened had God not intervened. Right. It's really a counterfactual here. And mm-hmm. uh, that means that it really boils down to, is there a God? If there is no God, then yes, a miracle is going to be a serious problem for your science. But if there is a God, then the fact that there is a, a normal way things happen according to science doesn't tell you how God should or shouldn't intervene to make something happen differently. So, uh, I, I realized the, the the issue of miracles and science is somewhat irrelevant. They boil down to, is there a God or not? And we're back to that big, important mm-hmm. question. Right. Because that determines everything else. Everything yeah. else kind of follows from that. Mm-hmm. What, what, um, what kinds of things helped you adjudicate that? I know you're, you're, you're starting to feel more affirmative, more positive, more... Uh, uh, friendly to Christianity in this sexual ethic place, in the science place. I mean, it doesn't seem like, in the, in, okay, miracles are possible. It doesn't mean they happened the way the Bible says, but at least now some of these barriers are being softened, broken down, okay? Um, what, in your mind, and, and maybe there wasn't a, a thing like this, in my own case, I just ca- 
came to the realization more and more like this, there's something really going on here. This is actually true. It wasn't like I turned a corner, but I slowly went over the hill. Um, I'm not sure exactly how it was for you, Guillaume. You're going through this much like I did. Mm -hmm. Very similar. Um, But did you come to a point where you turned a corner or was it a slower realization? So, I mean, it was an increasing uh, sentiment that whatever I was reading in the New Testament had the ring of truth. And I continued to pray still as a not yet believer. Uh, and this, it started to shift a little bit as my confidence changed to starting to say, um, all right, God, if, if you are there, I still don't know. I'm not sure. But if you are there and if it's, if this whole thing is from you and you're trying to show me you're there, then you're going to have to show me much more powerfully, more explicitly. I'm going to need some, some really like providential guidance in this. Um, and this is the kind of prayer where I was now expecting uh, God to open the heavens and send the lights and say, oh, welcome, son. Uh, and the way that I describe it in, <laughs> in the book is that uh, God did something He'd that have was to say it uh, in French, though. Yeah, <laughs> yes, I guess that's how I was praying. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, he was, uh, and then what he did instead is that he reactivated my conscience. And this is where the uh, intellectual openness started to meet the experiential struggle that the gospel I had been reading about made sense now of my experience when I finally felt the crushing weight of guilt for the things that I had done and that I finally understood the message of the gospel, which that in Christ, God is reconciling us to him back because he paying the penalty for the sin that we have committed and that exchange that that's right. at the heart of the christian message finally clicked in that zone of pain from having understood yes i am i am not a good mm-hmm. person i have done some really terrible things and i need forgiveness i i need this is how you mm-hmm. know like i'm not like all of my lies are not going to cut it like, i cannot deny it it's not denial and and the real solution was going to be the forgiveness that's mm-hmm. offered in christ so that so, intellectual aspect came with the experiential here where i accepted the gospel right yeah and this all kind of came together i remember in our first conversation there in baltimore you said that um you had been taking notes and in your notes, you kept asking, because the change hadn't fallen into the meter on this yeah. issue, the mm-hmm. cross, and you kept asking the question, why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? Why did, what's up with that kind of thing? And then, <clears throat> and then when you were, as God revivified your conscience, as you put it, active, reactivated your conscience and you became deeply aware of your fallenness, of your sin, and the things that you had done. You talk about this in the book. Um, that's when the light went on for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Answering the, that question. The, 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 that's, it's pretty funny to still have those notes uh, written in French uh, at home. I still have that pile of, of notes with all my questions to, the, to Robert uh, for my conversation. And this is only a, a few years afterwards that I, I came back to that pile and realized, uh, look at this question everywhere. Why did Jesus have to die? Why? Why? And it clearly, this was at the very heart of my misunderstanding. And it's when God reactivated my conscience that I finally clicked and said, yeah, that's why. Uh, me. He died for me. Mm. And so the gospel made sense there. And this is how I really ultimately say, okay, now I'm all in. Uh, I'm going to ask you, God, forgive me. Uh, And then the Christian message that we're saved freely by grace. And this is purely a forgiveness. It's a free gift for those who simply trust in Jesus, place their faith in him. Um, I did just that. And I experienced a spiritual rebirth, a renewal where the guilt uh, evaporated. And I, I was 
I, you know, I felt I had encountered the living God and I had been forgiven. And so the, mm. this was very I, much a, I remember a, a spiritual the, experience. The, yes, yes. So I remember specifically how you said it when we talked, uh, when, first of all, the guilt descended, and you said that was not a pleasant experience, <laughs> yes, that's right. the way you put it. <laughs> you know, and then to realize then, uh, kind of an OMG moment, like, oh my God, that... This is why Jesus died for me, as you just put it. And then the, that realization releasing you from this sense of guilt because you experience forgiveness. I mean, that's really, really, <clears throat> excuse me, powerful. And um, in your book, you though, you, you talk about going back to the States then. Yep. Or going to the States to visit Vanessa because this is kind of a still a... Um, a loose thread here. Yes, absolutely. That needs to be resolved. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? we got about six minutes left in our conversation. Yeah. So I, I went to the U.S. afterwards and I, I had uh, confessed to God, but I figured that I needed to confess my uh, sins uh, to <laughs> men as well. And so I, I confessed to uh, Vanessa in the end. And uh, I don't want to spoil all the, the details of the story for those who want to read the book, but essentially um, this was... Yeah, so uh, this threatened our relationship. It was a very difficult moment. Came back to Paris, but then she decided to forgive me. Uh, and uh, we made plans. And this is when I actually left everything behind, uh, quit my job, uh, quit my volleyball team, my band, and made plans to move to the US and uh, found a job on Wall Street. Uh, at the time, I was working in finance, so it worked really well. Um, and so that's where I moved to the US uh, and trying to be with her. You know, at that time, I figured that God had used all of this to uh, bring me to faith that it was reasonable to think that he wanted me to marry this woman. And so I mm -hmm. followed her, came to the U.S., and it turns out after a few months uh, in the U.S., it became very clear that we had a horrible relationship. Uh, there was constant fights. Uh, it just was not going to work, uh, and we broke up mm -hmm. by God's grace. Uh, and this mm -hmm. is the this is the turning point of the final stage of the story where um, I thought now, okay, God has brought me to the U.S. Uh, what's that about? Uh, I thought that I was giving up all of this to be with her, and now this is not a thing, and I'm alone in New York. What's happening? And it's the, the exact time that I started to uh, have conversations with my family and friends in France, uh, trying to tell them that I hadn't lost my mind in becoming a Christian. And this is how I got into the discipline of apologetics, of trying to give them some good reasons for what happened happened to me, uh, try to defend my Christian view, my newly found Christian view. And uh, that's when I started to get into some material as well. Uh, I had thought of good reasons for God's existence, but uh, there was plenty available as well. That's when I discovered your ministry, uh, discovered William Lane Craig, uh, Greg, uh, so you, uh, Lee Strobel, so, so some of the uh, uh, familiar voices uh, of uh, American Christian apologetics. Um, and so I, I enjoyed that material so much. I spent all of my evenings and weekends uh, studying, uh, watching debates dvds and that's how i got to you know see your material which is the reason why i connected with you at the conference afterwards to kind of tell you that you had that uh, participation right. in in my own uh, formation um and then uh, after doing this all the, my evenings and all my weekends i realized well if i'm going to be spending all of my time and resources in this i might as well get a degree out of this and so this is how i ended up applying for seminary got my master's and then uh -huh. uh, and then pursued my master's in new testament studies and later on with a, a phd in philosophical theology so it's kind of the last chapter of mm -hmm. how after all of this i found my way you know again through the back door to seminary education and then being an active uh, writer and researcher on uh, christian theology and philosophy it it's it is um 
and again, I can relate to my own life. Um, very similar kind of flow where at one time I never would have imagined anything like what my life has become so much happier that God found me and rescued me as he has you. And now we get to make a contribution in other people's lives the way others made contributions in ours. And uh, now you're married. You've got five kids, uh, not Vanessa, another woman. Yeah, and so you talked a little let, bit uh, about yeah, that and exactly. how you met. We can let the readers yeah, see all the, the resolution in the book, but I found a wonderful American uh, woman, uh, so Catherine, who uh, we've been married for over 10 years now, and we have five wonderful little American kids. And this is a very, very good life that I have here. <laughs> So uh, you you guys can't see, but I can see his smiling face. He's it's all lit up as he thinks about his wife and his kids. So, by the way, do they speak French? Your kids? Oh, absolutely. This is the most ador adorable thing you've ever seen. So they're all uh, bilingual. So they they speak French uh, with a little bit of American accent. Oh, okay, well, that's too. good. So, what about your wife? Is is yes, she? Yes, she's she American. Speak but yeah, she was fluent in French uh, when I met her. So. Oh, that's right. Uh, now I call it from the story. But uh, what a what a magnificent account, I don't want to say story because it's really happened, yeah. an account of uh, how God worked in your life and, and, you're, and you're, here you are, you're paying it forward. This isn't the only book you wrote. Um, you've written other theological works, as I recall. I'm mm -hmm. not looking at the bio here, but didn't you write one about, uh, about uh, Calvinism or about Reformed theology, I think? And yeah, this is a passion of yours. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, but the one we've been talking about, and if you want an introduction to Guillaume Bignon, last name is spelled B-I-G-N-O-N. Um, it's the title is Confessions of a French Atheist. And uh, I'm so glad that you hailed me from across that uh, lobby in the Baltimore Hotel. These, what, 10, 11, 12 years ago, whatever it was, eight years ago, I can't recall. It's just somewhere in the past. It's really sweet to see your face again, Guillaume, and I hope uh, we'll see each other this fall at yes, ETS again. That's the hope. Thank All you right? so much for having me, Greg. It's wonderful. Thank you. Guillaume Bignon, Confessions of a French Atheist. That's it for this hour, friends. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now.